and get started. Let me uh, let me pray for us and we'll go. Well, Father, God, I just ask your blessing on this service, God, especially with Pastor Emilio and Trish being gone, God. I pray that you would bless us, God, and and watch over us, God. I pray that um, the teachings today would be a blessings to your church, God. That we would truly um, grow in knowledge and in wisdom, God, and that these things would lead us to a heart to trust you and to act, God, as we should, out of thanksgiving for your salvation, God, and, and for the salvations of others, God. I pray that you would um, use this, this gathering today um, to bless your people. We ask your blessing. We ask your spirit to be here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, okay, today we're going to talk about the topic of providence. And I went ahead and wrote out the definition there. Some of you may have had time to read through it, uh, maybe a couple of points from it. But what we're going to see as we get involved with this, and the thing about providence in this whole discussion is that there's so many, there's so many trails that we could go down with this as it really affects almost everything. God's providence affects everything. And so, so there's a lot of things we can get into. I'm going to try to mediate this. I want you guys to definitely be involved, ask questions, because um, with providence, we're going to see very quickly that there is um, some mystery in this. There's some mystery as we get in to the doctrine of God's providence, and, and mystery is okay. That's what, at the end of the day, that's where I want to leave you guys, is that when we talk about God's sovereignty and things related to it, um, there is going to be some mystery, and in your heart, in your mind, you're going to have to be okay with that. Um, I pulled out a quote from John Calvin, who better to quote before, as we get started on, on providence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but notice what Calvin says. This is from his institutes. And he's talking about the reality of how there's mystery and how there's paradox in the word of God and how God has not revealed everything to us. And, and, and Calvin, even in his day, is fully aware of some of these issues and the hard questions with God's providence. Let me just read this for you. I know this is Calvin and he's hard to track. I'll try to read it so that you can follow. But Calvin says this. He says, for it is not right for man to unrestrainedly search out things that the Lord has willed to be hid in wisdom, which he would have us revere, but not understand, that through this also he should fill us with wonder. He has set forth by his word the secrets of his will that he has decided to reveal to us. These he decided to reveal insofar as he foresaw that they would concern us and benefit us. And then he goes on to say, And let us not be ashamed to be ignorant of some things in this matter, wherein there is a certain learned ignorance. And so Calvin, who wrote more than most on issues with God's sovereignty and God's providence, is fully aware that there comes to a point when the scriptures don't answer everything. And we're going to have to be okay with that. And we'll come probably really quickly to some of those issues. Um, but I just want you to be aware that even Calvin um, did not fully understand all of the mystery that's involved with the doctrines of grace and, and God's sovereignty and his providence. So let me just talk about the definition of the word providence. I know that um, I think we use this word a lot in our conversations, you know. Um, a way that we might use this word, for instance, may be, um, you know, I was on my way to work and my, and my car got a flat. I was late to work and, um, man, I really can't be late to work again 
But God has allowed this to happen. You know, we may say, well, hey, that was God's providence. That was, it's all in God's providence. Right? That's a way that we use this word. Um, I think the word providence has a pretty technical meaning. I know we use it very generally. Um, when we use it, uh, we use it in discussions involving God's sovereignty. What do we mean? What is the word sovereign? When we say God is sovereign, what do we mean by that? He's in charge of everything. He's in, charge of everything. He's in control of everything. That's right. Um, the word sovereignty is, is really like a characteristic of God. It's an attribute of God. God is sovereign. And this might help you to make this distinction in your mind is that because God being sovereign is an attribute of God, God being sovereign is something that God was even before he created anything. Before the creation of anything, before Genesis 1-1, God was there and God was sovereign, right? Before anything was created. So, as God created and, and so as the world became and as we were created and now we are here, um, the word providence is really, um, it's an extension of God's sovereignty, but it's more particular into how God's sovereignty is carried out um, in his creation. That's what we mean by providence, how God, the sovereign God, works with his creation in time, how all that happens. That's what we mean by providence. So it, it's kind of just like a particular aspect, I think, uh, a more narrow subject than his sovereignty. I know we use the words interchangeable and we're not going to be nitpicky, but just so you know, when you're reading, when theologians use the word, they're using it in a particular way. So it's just helpful to keep those things in mind. Um, I put Grudem's definition up here from his systematic. You know, as we've been going through these topics, we've really been relying on Grudem's outline. It's very, very helpful, very standard. He doesn't stray away from most of the, most of the great systematics of, of, of past times. And so this is how he defines providence. He says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing with their properties. This is even kind of a dumbed-down definition of what he said, but this is what he's saying. He keeps everything existing with their properties. He also continually involves his creation that he cooperates with his creation to cause it to act as it does. That starts getting more interesting, doesn't it? That God work, cooperates with his creation to cause it to act as it does. And then as he's causing it to act as it does, he's directing all of that action of his creatures to fulfill his purposes. That's God's providence. Do you have a question, brother? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like putting everything in order? Yeah, putting everything in order, and even once it's in order, controlling how it works from there. I mean, it's... Basically, what we're saying with God's providence is that um, there's no limit to how extremely intimate God's relationship is with everything that he's created. I mean, God is, there is nothing happening that God is not intimately, as intimate as you could be involved with it, right? Sproul says, you know, the, Sproul says there's not a maverick molecule in the universe, meaning there's not a single molecule, the smallest, smallest elements that are out there, nothing is happening outside of God's providence, outside of his will and outside of his ultimate control. Right? Yes, go, go to Robert and then Chris. Uh, I'd like to just read what the dictionary actually defines as providence as well because it touches Might be a good contract. there. Yeah. It says, the foreseeing care and guidance of God over the creatures of the earth. Foreseeing? 
Okay. Yep, the foreseeing care. Okay. Uh, the second piece to this, it says, uh, God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of mankind with wise benevolence. And then a really simple one they put down, a manifestation of divine care. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah. Right? I like how they brought out the fact that all of this, and this is helpful to remember, all of this is done in benevolent love, benevolent care. That's going to be important to remember because as we start talking about, we're saying God is intimately in control of everything. We mean even evil things, even bad things. God is intimately, so it's important to understand that's good. Chris? Would you say that the, the idea of providence, that the antithesis of that would be, the, would be deism? Man, did you, you see my notes are well? <laughs> no, that's exactly it. So that's perfect. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So what are some of the differences um, in worldviews, right, between what we're saying the Bible teaches and what some other view are? So define deism for us. Like, what is that? Well, it's a belief in God, but God is not intimately involved with the creation. Um, they would reject miracles and, and God basically interacting with creation. I think the analogy is like a clockmaker. You wind things up and then let it go. That's perfect, right? So we're saying, what we're saying the Bible teaches is, is distinct from that, that God, yes, there is a God. I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's variation in deists, but um, there is a God who started the world, got it spinning, but then from that point just kind of takes his hands away and it's kind of up to us to work out, you know, whatever's going to happen, right? Just a hands-off approach, deism. Um, maybe a harder one, I think, as we think about these things. Maybe the, the worldview of fatalism. Fatalism. Can anybody define like what, what a fatalist kind of holds to in, in their mind? What is their philosophical viewpoint of the world? Fatalism. You've heard the word, right? Fatalism? Yeah. What does that mean? Like a robot? Like a robot? Yeah, kind of. Whatever happens, Whatever happens is going to happen, right? So why do it? So why? Yeah, basically the idea is what's going to happen is going to happen, um, but we believe that. In, in a sense, we believe that God is decreed from the foundation of whatever so happens is going to happen. We believe that. Um, the difference is, is that uh, a fatalist is, is, is usually not a deist, not a Bible-believing Christian. Their fatalism comes from more of a, a, like a mechanistic outworkings of material. Like there's this material here. It has its properties. Whatever properties it has and whatever energies are going are going to cause these things to do whatever they're going to do. And there's nothing we can, no free will, no will of, there's no real will of man. Everything is just mechanically happening due to the material world, right? Fatalism. So just whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's not really any point in... Would that be a good attribute of hyper-Calvinism? Fatalism, right? So that may be some deists who are at the same time fatalistic in, in some senses, right? So they do believe in a God, um, but that may, that, that may be a good thing, and I didn't bring up hyper-Calvinism, but that is a difference. Um, yeah, that, that's good because they're deists and they're fatalistic, meaning they're not accepting all of the truths of the Bible in that, yes, they believe that God has decreed everything that's going to happen, he's predestined everything that's going to happen, that's good, but they don't believe that their actions are real, that their um, actions in time will actually produce anything in the future or affect what's going to happen. And this really is, I mean, we might as well dive into it because that's the rub. 
right there is the rub. There's two truths in Scripture. Let me, let me read them to you. Let me just say it like this. There's two truths found in Scripture that we have to affirm. We have to affirm both of them at the same time. Um, one is that God is in control of everything. Um, we'll read some Scriptures definitely on this. I'm not just throwing out this stuff. But God is in control of everything we all affirm. And we must affirm also that what we do in time matters. Uh, that God holds us responsible for what we do. That's true. Um, that God, even though he has decreed everything that's going to happen, including evil, God is not responsible for evil. Right? So yes, God's decreed everything, and no, God's not responsible for our evil, and what we do is real. Our actions are real. Our prayers are real. Our decisions are real. You know what I mean? Our sharing of the gospel, that's real. We've got to hold both of these. And, and I know it seems paradoxical. It is paradoxical, I think. Uh, it's paradoxical. How does that work together, that's the mystery. But if you don't hold both of those things, you're going to go down some paths you don't want to go down, hyper-Calvinism being an example of that, that if you, don't, if you don't hold this view that the Bible clearly does, that your actions matter, your actions are real, they affect what's going to happen in time, very strange. It's, it's a strange truth. It's a strange truth that, that God's carrying out here. A lot of the, the discussion in, in Providence comes to how is our wills um, working together with God's will. How does all, how does all that work out? Um, and as you think about the two wills, you think about God's will, you think about our will, um, I think, you know, especially as Bible-believing Christians, we, we see the scriptures that God is fully sovereign, God is in control of everything. I think we can, uh, you know, see that in the scriptures. I think the easier part of that might be understand is that our decisions are real, that we're not robot. Does anybody feel like a robot? Does anybody in their mind think, man, I'm just a robot? I no, I think naturally we somehow God has put his image into us that what we do is real and it affects things. I mean, you know, I think that comes natural. What we might need to get programmed into our robotic minds, <laughs> what we might need to believe is that God is in fact sovereign over all these choices that we make. And that God's intimately, that's what we might need to be convinced of. I think naturally we know we're not robots. I mean, I don't feel like a robot. Um, so I'm not conflating the two truths, and that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to conflate the two truths, but at the same time, I think we need to look at, look at the fact and look at some scriptures that God is the ultimate cause of everything that happens, and he's intimately involved in all of our thoughts, all of our actions. Um, God's sustaining everything in this world. Maybe let's just start there. Let's start with God's, maybe like start with the first part of his definition. God keeps things existing. God's providence keeps everything that is as it is. And so turn to Hebrews 1, verse 3. I know there's some pretty classic texts, but we've got to establish some of these truths. Hebrews chapter 1, verse Somebody want to read it for us nice and loud so everybody can hear? Maybe just the first half of the verse. Hebrews 1, 3a. 1, 3a. Uh, 3a, like just the first part of, you'll know when to stop. And he is the radius of his, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's right. And who specifically in the Godhead is this referring to? Jesus Christ. He's talking about even the Son. The Son upholds all things. How does he do it? By the word of his power. Interesting phrase. And as we're going to see, and as we look at more verses, like oh, this is almost all the explanation we get. 
Because we're going to wonder how, how does God do this? By the word of his power. That's how, it, that's how he does it. Maybe another one. Go to Colossians 1.17. It's really just a parallel passage, but I want you to see that the scriptures, in fact, um, teach this. That God is the one holding all things together. Colossians 1.17. You heard it there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Robert. Read that for us. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, same language, right? Yep. In him. So who is Colossians 1.17 specifically referring to? Christ. Christ again. Christ again. The Son is here spoken of as, in him all things hold together. Let me just read, I thought was, was one of the more interesting um, ways the Bible teaches this. You know, if you go to the book of Job... You always got to be careful when you're hearing quotes from the book of Job for this reason, that if, if you know the story of the book of Job, you know Job is sovereignly by the Lord and through God's providence has removed his health, removed his family. I mean, he's terribly sick, diseased. And his friends, his companions come and try to comfort him and try to reason with him while this is happening, you know. And as you read through all of their advice, you better be very careful if, as you're quote, quoting their advice as if it's, because it's not always good. solid, it's not always good. But, but I think uh, Elihu, here in Job 34, I'm just going to read to you what he says. Uh, he says, if he should determine, so he's speaking of God, if God should determine so, if he should gather to himself his spear and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would just return to the dust. Right? So God, he's attributing God's providence of upholding all things. If God was to decide to take his breath from man, man would just return back to dust. So God is keeping us alive. He's sustaining us. Um, as I said, I think this is where a lot of the mystery is. Because our minds want to figure everything out. How does God hold all these things together uh, the Bible doesn't give us like the scientific or, or the mechanistic means by which God holds all things together. As I said, Hebrews 1.3 just says he does it by the word of his power. The spoken word of Christ is enough. That's enough means to, to hold everything together. Um, I think these things are really even mysterious to scientists. You know, if, if you've listened to any lectures or done any scientific study, um, when they start getting down to some of the, the smallest of of, of material objects, atoms, and, and these types of studies, very quickly you hear a lot of um, guesswork, a lot of mystery in that. One of the mysteries they talk about that's always kind of blown my mind is as you think about atoms, right, these very, one of the smallest particles that there is, as they talk about, you have an atom, right, everybody knows like the nucleus. They talk about um, in, in discussions of, of how things have their properties. How is this thing solid right here? Because if you go down to the smallest particle as in an atom, and this is the nucleus, spatially, you know, the electrons, they used to draw the pictures how they orbit around, you know, even that's kind of misleading, I think, now they don't believe that. But there are these electrons that they hypothesize to be there on the outside, you know, the electrons out here. And they say, um, given the ratio of space between the nucleus and the electrons, they would say it would be like a basketball here in the middle of the earth, in the very center of the core, a basketball. That's the size of the, of the nucleus, just nothing. Um, and the electrons would be floating around out in our atmosphere. That's the relative distance of... So you have matter, which is... Mostly space. It's mostly space. 
I mean, crazily, mostly space. And that's, the, that's what's so amazing. And uh, so, yeah, there's even mysteries of how, you know, there oh, must be this electromagnetic field that, but even that they can't say, how could this thing put out an electromagnetic field to hold an electron out there? It's, it's, it's mysterious. So, it's funny yeah. because the, even the idea of electrons and, and atoms mm -hmm. are simply theory. They don't actually truly see proof of them existing. Right. It's just a, a systematic way of explaining things in the material world. It's true. Uh, they, it's true. Nobody's ever seen an atom before, but yet we use the, the terminology to describe stuff as if it actually is there. Yeah, and they can work with it. You know, they can make atomic bombs, and they can blow an atom up, but they don't know. You know, I mean, there's so much mystery into creation, but we know what's sustaining it. It's the sun. The sun of God is what's, what's keeping that mystery together, even if that's an accurate drawing. But that's what's... It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So um, I think another interesting, since we're talking about science is the fact that Christ does this, is the fact that God upholds all things and keeps them existing with their properties and, and, and cooperates with creation to, to cause it to act as it does. Because that's, those things are true, that's why science is true. That's why we can do science. It's because God is maintaining a uniformity of nature. Um, if that wasn't true, I watched a YouTube video. I don't know how I found this guy. You know, you've got to be very careful on your YouTube escapades, right? You've got to be careful. I've seen a guy, I, I, I've seen like some of his science videos before. He's fully secular scientist. Um, and uh, his, his title of his video was Why Free Will is Not True. So I'll kind of piqued my interest. Okay, let me see what this guy says. And so what it came down to was actually a discussion of this. Uh -huh. It came down to, well, um, free will, or no, why he's saying free will is true. Sorry. Why free will is true. Which, in a materialistic mindset, I'm saying, if I was a materialist, I would be a fatalist. Right? Because, it's, I mean, if there's nothing outside of ma matter giving it its properties and controlling and governing, things are just going to happen how they're going to happen. Right? The forces that are acting are just going to act. And, right? So that, that's kind of how I thought about that. So I said, let me hear what this guy's going to say. But what he started talking about was how electrons, you know, what they're saying are electrons, um, how science cannot determine their movements. You know, because like in, in school we learned that it was like an orbit. Well, it doesn't just orbit like, you know, the Earth around the Sun. That's not what's happening. It's definitely apparently random to them. So what they're saying is because the smallest of our matters are randomly things occurring, therefore as that, you know, affects the larger and more complex, that things are random and things are, you know, not set. That was his answer. You know, I said, man, if I was a material, and I, even, I never comment, I never do this. <laughs> but now I, I commented, you know, that's what happens, you know, when you make the mistake of like at three in the morning doing it. So I never even went back. I want to go back and look. But don't you think if you're a materialist that you have these electrons that science is saying, man, I don't know why that seems random, like what's making it go where it goes. We're, we're kind of tracing its effects, but we don't know why. Don't you, wouldn't you assume that there's smaller forces causing that? I mean, where do you get this random idea from? Yes, sir, go ahead. Well, and, like, if we made that argument as, like, a scientific argument for free will, like, Ken Ham was making that argument to a materialist. Right. They would say, well, you just don't understand how science works. You're making an argument from ignorance. Right. That, uh, you know, we just don't understand what makes the electron act that way. And it appears random. 
when we look at animals like running around outside, you know, like cavemen look at them and like, well, that raccoon being out in the middle of the day seems random. Right. Really, it's because he has rabies and he has There is a <laughs> reason for that raccoon, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But things that appear to act random in nature are just being acted upon by forces that we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, you think they would be humble enough. I mean, they're admitting, he's saying, you know, we don't even know how, really how this works, but let me tell you why it does. The materialists would never accept that explanation from a Christian. Well, they wouldn't. You'd get, you'd get ridiculed. If but that's the hypocrisy of it. And I'm not really going to, so of course, you know what I'm quoting in my Hebrews 1.3. You know what I mean? Like, because that's the answer. They may not like the answer, and they might not find it sufficient, but brothers and sisters, the answer is that Christ is sustaining everything. Um, you know, maybe a verse just to keep in mind. I thought this one was helpful. Um, I don't know that I've actually ever even used it in, in like an apologetic discussion, but as you're talking to people and, and you know, we like to go preach up a lot of the times, right? We're, we're, we're good with that. And we think it can be helpful and is true and, and right. Um, but the, the text that I thought is helpful in my thinking of why, you know, we attribute this is called a concurrence. This is a theological word that Grudem has, concurrence. How God's causing all things to act as it does and continue on. Concurrence is a theological term for that, but um, this is a text that, that I think is helpful. Genesis 8, 22. This is what God says. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. I mean, what in the world are you talking about? Well, from that, we just get that God is carrying these things along in a systematic way that he's going to maintain the properties that we're all fully familiar with. In other words, randomness, random as far as God's um, creation and, and how we view the world, is not, it's not going to be random. God is sustaining patterns that we can study, that we can learn from, that we can trust. You know, that tomorrow, randomly, it's not going to be winter forever. You know what I mean? Like, we can know that because God's sustaining the earth in, in these ways, and, and he promises that these things are going to continue until, of course, Christ comes. So, there's hope, and that should give you a settlement in your heart to know that God is, you know what I mean, that tomorrow something crazy, you know, is just not going to change. You know, that's, at least it, it, it helps me, you know, my thinking about that. So, let's look at some more passages to convince us of, of God's intimate relationship with all things all things. And we'll start with the inanimate world, just nature, just nature. Maybe a couple texts on this. Somebody want to read a good portion of scripture for us uh, from Job? From Job again. You know what? I didn't check the context of this to make sure, but it's true. <laughs> Job 37, verses 6 through 12. It's, it's six verses, but I think, again, it's helpful in, in exactly what we're talking about. Who wants to read it for us? Yeah. Go ahead. For the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. He seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into, the, into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made, and the expanse of the water is frozen. Also, with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes directions, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Very good. 
Interesting, isn't it? How what God is saying to us is just nature, right? Lightning, ice storms, cold air, all of these things. I mean, just the language in there that men may know his work, he says. Um, From the breath of God, ice is made. Uh, that all of these things may do whatever he commands it. It's very interesting, you know, as, as we think about what nature is and what's going on. Um, and so in this, we see a couple of things. We see what I would just call the primary cause behind nature. The primary cause is obviously God's taking all of the credit for that. But what we see with our eyes, because we don't see God doing these things, what we see is almost like what I would call like secondary causes. We see and we can study and science studies aspects of how nature works and how God's doing all these things, you know. That's, that's what we see with our eyes. Um, so we see the secondary causes. We can't see God doing these things, but we, because we believe the Word of God, know that that is what's behind it, and we can trust that. Um, what about the animal? Uh, we talked about rabid raccoons already, but let me... Let me read Matthew 10, 29. You know the text. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Meaning God's providence is over even the smallest of birds. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of the father. Right? God is intimate, related um, to the, the animals. I thought just examples in my mind that came quickly to me is how God providentially brought that ram to Abraham. Right? So that... God would provide the sacrifice so that Isaac would not have to be killed. Genesis 7, how God providentially worked to bring all of these animals to Noah at the ark. That's amazing. You know, God just directs. He can direct the animals. Um, what about seemingly chance or random occurrences? Proverbs 16.33 for this one. The lot, which is something that they would, almost like we think of a dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is no random, there's no random occurrence of the dice. And there's no luck. All of these decisions are from the Lord. Interesting, he's, over, he's, he's sovereign over the cast of a lot. Um, over the nations. How about over people's groups? God's providence over people's groups. Job 12, 23 again. He makes the nations great, then he destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then he leads them away. God, just the nations. I like how Paul says in Acts 17:25, Paul speaking about God, um, one of his famous sermons here, nor, speaking of God, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. Everything from you being alive to where you're going to live, all of these things are sovereignly decreed by God. It's amazing. Um, I don't know. You guys feel free to share any text that come to mind. Um, I just kind of tried to categorize some of these texts. How about over men's individual lives? I like Proverbs 21.1. This is comforting to me to know that even as we think about Um, the countries that are at war right now and the fate of our country, to know that none of this is outside of God's control. None of these are outside of his hand. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart 
is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Even the hearts of these kings are not outside the control of God. God, if he willed, this is important to recognize, God, if he willed, could save President Obama today if he wanted. Right? That's comforting to know that if God wanted Obama to be saved, he would be saved, and that God could do that. And, and, if, and if God wanted to prevent um, national calamity and, and, and wartime through President Obama, he could turn his heart to do this or that. None of these things are outside of God's control. So, maybe we can discuss some of the, the, the harder issues about this. Maybe the paradox that comes involved in God's providence because if God is sovereign, if God's controlling man in these ways, how then do our actions have any real meaning? Does your mind sometimes try to figure that out and wonder, how does this work together? Um, so again, Scripture doesn't explain that answer, I don't think. It doesn't tell us how in the world God determines everything, but yet how in the world obviously our actions are real God holds you accountable for your actions. God's going to hold you accountable for your sin. God's going to reward you for your good works. Those things are true. Those, so your, your, thing, your, your actions are real. Your prayers are real. All these things. Um, you know what I thought I would do? Turn to Romans chapter 9. It won't be the last time we turn there today, but turn to Romans chapter 9 because I know in a church like ours who, who teaches the sovereignty of God and, and we're, we're unashamed of the sovereignty of God, I think we must be aware as you try to figure some of these things out and just as Calvin wisely said, there's some points when you want to stop. You want to stop where Scripture stops because if you try to go beyond that, you can get yourself into trouble. And in Romans chapter 9, we have this situation where as, God, as Paul is teaching about the sovereignty of God and how God is in control over every person, how God creates people to be how they're going to be, Paul understands how hard this teaching is. He almost foresees that somebody's going to have this, um, really like a challenge to what Paul's saying. Paul's aware of this. And I, and I think that's interesting too, that even in the hard things in the Bible, Paul's not unaware that these are hard teachings. Peter says, right, in Peter's second letter at the end of it, that, man, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. But even though they're hard, Peter says, and some people twist them to their own destruction. So even in that one, we've got to be very clear about how we're dealing with even the hard things. There's, tread lightly on some of these things. That's, that's what really what I'm trying to say. We need to be careful about how quick we are to just fly off and, and declare some things, right? Um, but look in this hypothetical situation in, in Romans chapter 9, in verse 19, because here, somebody is taking this, this, what is the glorious truth of God's sovereignty and his providence, um, determining people's uh, desires and their makeup. Somebody almost gives a hypothetical challenge to Paul. And Paul, Paul says it like this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Meaning God. This person saying, how can God still find fault in me? Meaning, how can God hold me accountable for my sin? For who resists his will? If God is the one whose ultimate will determines how I'm going to be, how can God hold me responsible? Right? So they're struggling with this question and almost saying, how can God hold me responsible for my sin with the mindset of, you know, I can just sin and it's God's, God made me like this. Right? But here's Paul's explanation. 
Um, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Meaning, Paul's answer is, really, we have no right to question God on some of these matters. And we certainly don't have the right to try to make God responsible for the sin. Because remember, those are some of the truths that we have to hold together. Is not only does God decree everything, yes, he does, but God is not responsible for our sin. He holds us responsible. I'm not saying I can explain how those things work, but I'm saying you must believe both of those or you're going to be in error and you, could, you don't want the rebuke of the Apostle Paul, right? You don't want, that's not a good thing. You're, you're off. If, if, if what you believe would be uh, challenged by Paul, that's not good. So, do you have something? Yeah, Go ahead. Uh, this comes up all the time when we're uh, witnessing right. people. This came up yesterday right. when they asked the question, well, if somebody in some other country who's never heard of Jesus Christ, uh, will they go to hell? And I said, well, they don't go to hell necessarily for lack of belief in Jesus Christ. They go to hell for their sin against the God that they know exists. Okay. And they're like, and they start questioning, oh, I, don't, I wouldn't want to believe in that. I, and then this exact text mm -hmm. plays right into that encounter of who are you, the created, to question the creator? Right. Um, you answer to him. He doesn't have to answer to you. And then Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning we are told that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all of the words of the law. That's right. It's a good text. It's a good text for all this. Because what right, Moses is saying is that there are some things that are revealed. And these things that are revealed, we should, they're for us and for our children, and we're to preach them and we're to believe them, be unashamed about the fact that the Bible says God is sovereign over all things. I can say that boldly, unashamedly, because the Bible clearly teaches that, you know. Um, but there are other things that God has not revealed. For instance, how God can be sovereign and cause all these things to happen, but yet we're still responsible. So that's where I would transit into the second part of Deuteronomy 29-29. I was like, that obviously is something that God doesn't want me to venture too far into because he doesn't tell us, and we've got to be okay with that. You know? Yes, sir? I think the, 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 the Bible does not answer many how questions. Right. And that, I think, is what frustrates a lot of people. But the Bible does answer that questions. God's the one who does this. God does that. Christ does this. Christ does that. Hmm. And you should do this, and you should do that. And I think we need to stop people when we're having conversations from, well, how does God, how does God do this? Just not say, no, that's not a question you need to have. Take them back to that text Robert just read. Yeah. And say, hey, this has not been revealed. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Right. And just say, but God does. And that's, that's the way I approach it. I don't even worry about the how question. Yeah, that's, that, that, I think that's a good point. He doesn't answer the how question. Like, what would be another how question that God doesn't answer? And maybe we would like to know. How is Jesus God and man? Yeah, that's a good one. A hypostatic <laughs> union. Yeah, that is a good one. That is a mystery. That is one of the greatest mysteries, right? That may be the greatest, they say, the greatest mystery. Yes, sir. I wanted to jump in. Cause I yeah, go ahead. Like, at least, the, the question's been at least partially answered. Right. And I'm going to steal from James White. Do it. Uh, because I've listened to, like, everybody. I'll <laughs> uh, go. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, you're, you're writing it right now. The distinction in the will of God between yeah. God's revealed will and, and what he's decreed will come to pass. We know 
that he's revealed to us the like the thou shalt and thou shalt not, and then but he's also decreed whatsoever comes to pass. That's we right. have no knowledge of God's secret will. So right. on judgment day, no one can say, well, you you made me you know murder person X because God's response is you didn't know that I had decreed that, mm -hmm. but you were commanded not to do that and chose to do it anyway. Right. Yeah, some of the things that John said like reminded me. That's what got me down this track. I have it in my notes too, but I thought we'd hit it now because, yeah, so this, these are more defi theological definitions, right? Some people can't keep all these in track of your head, but you won't until you hear them many, many times over. Nobody learns this stuff the first time, so don't feel bad. But the more times you hear these things, the more times you're exposed to them, that's what will start uh, starting to snowball. But yes, Cody's talking about these two things. These are, more, these are two more things that the Bible clearly teaches that are true. One is that God has a decretive will, meaning God, this is what we're talking about, like our sovereign God, how he has decreed everything to happen. What we mean by that is that God has planned, God is... Um, yeah, God has planned everything that's going to happen and he's carrying that will out. So everything that God planned before the foundation of the world, that's what's going to happen. That's how prophecies can be true. That's how the book of Revelation can be true. God knows what's going to happen because he's decided what will happen. So God has a decretive will, meaning it's this will that God has that he knows that what, what he wants to happen ultimately and what he's going to make happen. That's God's decretive will. Now, there's another will of God. A, a prescriptive will of God is, what, is, is how we describe it. Um, his will of command may be another easier way to, to say that. His will of command. Meaning, this is what God says we um, have to do, what we should do. When God gives a command, you shall not lie, God does not want you to lie, right? That seems pretty simple. But the rub is, is that there's another decretive will that God has that lies will happen, and we will lie, you know? That's what's, that's what's interesting. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. But, but again, both of these are very true. You can't deny either of these. If you, if you deny the decretive will, what were some of the errors? Like, um, we talked about hyper-Calvinism is one area, a fatalistic view. Another error would be open theism, where if you don't think that God has a decretive will, if you don't think that God is orchestrating everything that happens and it's just the free will of man that's going to determine things and God's trying to keep together, the, trying to make up all the mistakes, man, that is a, that is a well, to... That is a heretical view. That, I think that it's a damning view to be an open theist, meaning God doesn't know the future. God's cleaning up messes. I don't even know how prophecy works. You know, they have a big God, but he's not big enough to be the God of the Bible. Right? He's a powerful God. He can clean up messes, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign, and he has a decretive will. Sometimes, I mean, I think, you know, this analogy can be helpful. We, um, as parents, have... Because some people, you know, God has multiple wills. Like, I don't get all that. It doesn't make sense. That can't be true. Where does the Bible say that? Um, I think naturally we can relate. As a parent, I have a decretive will and I have a prescriptive will. Maybe my decretive will would be that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spank my four-year-old daughter when she's bad so that she will be good. That's, I'm going to do that. Um, 
because I, I want her to be good. I know that it will end to a good purpose. I know that it will help her. Um, so in my soul, spanking is good. Right? I have, that, I have that one will, that spanking is good. I have another will, and maybe I'm getting these conflated, but I have another will where I don't want to spank my four-year-old daughter. I don't want her to cry. I don't want her to be in pain. I don't want her to look at me like she does when I'm spanking her. You see how I have multiple wills that lead to different actions? They're both my will. I both believe both of them. I act upon both of them. Isn't that strange? Like, so we can relate. We all have a multiple levels to our wills. And so God's multiple levels to his will are important in that God has decreed all things. And then God says, God has this prescriptive will where he tells us um, how we should act so that we would uh, mimic his holiness, mimic his characteristics, uh, those kinds of things, even though he knows we will not keep those commands and that we will, we will err. Yes, sir? I think, you know, one good example is, you know, God, in the Ten Commandments, says you shall not murder him, yet he decreed that his son would be murdered. From the beginning of time. <laughs> well, Brother Wally, I think, I think you've providentially directed us to where we're going to end because I think that's good. You know, what is the ultimate, the ultimate sin against God's prescriptive will? The ultimate sin against God's prescriptive will is the crucifixion of the Messiah. The worst thing that mankind could do was crucify the Son of God. The worst thing. But guess what is the greatest thing that God's ever decreed that would happen? The crucifixion of the Messiah. So, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. I hope by now, and, and maybe, I don't know, I hope by now, uh, don't you hate it like when the pastor says, like, you should all know this verse by memory, but let's turn there anyway, and you don't know it. But <laughs> I hate when Emilio does that to me. But this is a text that I think on all of these issues, on all of these issues, this is a text you need to know, and you need to know where it's at, and you need to, to get this, to see how God's decree works out in time with human beings and human beings sin how could a, it comes down let me just tell you real quick the, the definitions for this um, uh, a theodicy what's the definition of theodicy theodicy you know it like addressing the problem of evil exactly how and you'll hear this you know evangelism like how if there's this good sovereign all-powerful guy that you guys are preaching here how, why evil? How could evil exist? Why evil? Um, that's called theodicy, the problem of how God relates to evil. So um, this text, I think, is a place to go. It's a good text to not only will you answer the, the problem, but boom, you're right back with the crucifixion of Christ in the gospel. Good text. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Interesting. So here's the two truths that are simultaneously being spoken of here by Peter. The one is that the death of Christ was predestined by God, and this act was he doesn't say God is responsible for this heinous murder. Who's responsible? These Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, right? So in the same verses, 
um, God, I mean, God through Peter here and, and through Luke recording this is explaining to us how both are true. Again, I can't tell you how God works all that out. Be okay with that. As, as John Calvin said, there's a good learned ignorance about this. Learn how to be ignorant on some things. It's okay for you. But this is a text that I think is very clear. Like, God has decreed for his son to be murdered. How is God going to bring that to fruition? Through the sin of man. These things that God says do not do, God's decreed that it would happen, that sin would happen, that murder would happen of his own son. Amazing. I saw, Chris, go ahead and your hands still up. I found a good companion verse to that, which is Acts chapter 2. Just read that too. Where I like that one. <laughs> Emilio, this is Acts chapter 4, so I use it. But I like Acts chapter 2. Read it for us. Like it. Okay. Read it for us. Uh, to, uh, I'll start at 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hand of lawless men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Same, same truth, right? Same truth. He was delivered up by God's what? Foreknowledge and predetermined plan? Yeah, I just thought that's interesting verbiage. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan. <laughs> not a plan I'm going to, you know, see, you know, not, not an indefinite plan. The yeah. definite plan, right? So let's end on that, that reality that God has decreed the worst sin that's ever going to happen, yet God says do not sin. And Louis Burkhoff, if y'all haven't heard the name before, I know Emilio's used it, but Louis Burkhoff, who um, Wayne Grudem gets most of his stuff from, I think, unashamedly. Um, Wayne Grudem, at this point in his commentary, I mean, his uh, systematic says, the problem of God's relation to sin still remains a mystery. Why did Satan fall? Where did that thought come from in Satan? You know, that's a mystery. That's a mystery. So we'll leave it there. Hopefully you guys are okay with it. I'm glad all you guys interacted. That was very helpful. Um, let's pray, and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, this is a mystery to us, God, and I pray that you would, God, protect our church, God, from stumbling into trying to figure out things that you have not revealed, God, and that, that we would be kept from stumbling and falling into serious error, God. I pray that we would be given the maturity, God, that Calvin spoke of to leave some of these things, God, up to you. God, I thank you, God, as, as Romans 8 says, that you're working all of these things out, not only for our good, but for your glory. God, that we can trust that you're in control, God. You're a good God. God, I'm glad, God, that you are the one in control because you are good. And that's comforting to us to know that What's going to happen is not ultimately determined upon our wills, our fallen sinful wills, God, but that everything is going to work out perfectly according to your will so that you will receive perfect and the utmost glory. God, we thank you that you're in control. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.